Portions of this podcast may not be suitable for children. It's real-life stories and sometimes PG-13. Your life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. Anonymous. You're listening to the Think Twice TV podcast. Hear true life stories, portable insight, and engaging messages. On this show, we'll think twice about life, faith, and just what could be possible when the two are combined. Broadcasting from the beautiful Great Lakes state of pure Michigan, here's your host, Dan Henderson. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Think Twice TV podcast. We have awesome stories today about lives that were spared. Our first story is from Kim. She struggled with depression and finding meaning in life. And as a teen, she was planning her suicide until something changed her plans. Let's listen in now. When I was 15 years old, I became really depressed and unhappy with my life. My parents had divorced when I was 12, and my mom had gotten remarried to a man that had three children, which lived with us. The marriage only lasted a year, and they got a divorce. After this, it was just my mom, me, and my sister. My mom had started dating and went out on the weekends. I would usually go out with my friends. I really didn't have a reason to commit suicide now that I think back on what led me to make that decision. I wasn't as popular as I wanted to be, and my best friend was becoming popular and getting all the attention from the guys. She had a boyfriend, and I didn't. I had started smoking and drinking. This made me more depressed. On the day I decided to commit suicide, I had been out with my friend. I had a terrible time and started thinking about suicide. We had met these two guys that we knew while we were out, and they said they would take us home. We had all been drinking that night, but I didn't know the guy that was driving was as drunk as he was. On the way home, I was thinking about how I would commit suicide once I got home. My mom had always had problems with her kidneys, and she had all kinds of prescription medicine in the cabinet. I decided I would take all the pills in the cabinet. Everything that was in the cabinet, I would put on the kitchen table and sit down and just start taking pills until I passed out. By the time it was morning and my mom got up, I would be dead. We were just a few miles from home when the driver ran off the road. It started raining, and I guess he must have been driving faster than I realized. The last words I remember being spoken were his friends saying, Hey man, get back on the road. The driver must have jerked the truck back on the road because the next thing I remember, we were flying through the air. The truck had hit a row of poles that someone had put up in their yard. The poles were just a few feet and this caused the truck to go up in the air and flip over. I remember my friend grabbing hold of the steering wheel and saying, Oh my God, I thought to myself, maybe I will die in this wreck and then I won't have to go home and take all those pills. This would be easier. It seemed like everything happened in slow motion. I put my hands together and bowed my head and said, please God, don't let this hurt. The next thing I remember was waking up thinking I was at home in my bed and I was waking up from a dream. I suddenly began to remember what had happened. I had been in a wreck. Everything was pitch black and I couldn't see. I tried to move, but I couldn't. I felt a horrifying fear come over me. I must be dead. I tried harder to get out of the darkness, but I couldn't and I became more and more afraid. Words cannot begin to describe how terrified I was when I realized I must be dead. I had wanted to die, and now I had my wish. I didn't want to be dead if this was what it was like. I couldn't see or move. I was just lying there in total darkness with overwhelming fear and loneliness. I began to call out to God. Please God, don't let me be dead. I promise to stop smoking and drinking, and I will quit thinking about committing suicide. As I prayed to God, he quickly came and brought me out of the darkness. I began to crawl out from underneath the truck, and I saw my friends standing there. We had landed upside down in front of someone's house. 
They called the ambulance and I was taken to the hospital. It was a miracle that I wasn't dead. My head was split wide open to the bone and I had broken my back. I was lucky to be alive. Statistics say that someone thinking about committing suicide will usually not tell anyone. This is why when they do commit suicide, everyone is so shocked. They didn't know that the person was so depressed. When I decided to commit suicide, I didn't tell anyone, not even my best friend. The only one that knew my thoughts and what I was planning to do was God. If I hadn't gotten to that wreck, I would have attempted suicide and probably would have died, but God didn't let me. He saved me when I was lying there in the terrifying darkness. I think he was showing me of what it would be like if I had committed suicide. I would have went to hell. I don't know till this day where I was at. Maybe it was the gates of hell, and that is why I felt so horrified. All I know is I never want to go back there again. I urge anyone thinking of suicide to seek help. Trust me, you do not want to experience what I did. I am just so thankful that God saved me and didn't let me die. My life has been full of trials, but God has always been there for me when I didn't know it. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our next story is from Carol. She found herself in a life-and-death battle with an enraged husband wielding a knife. Just as she was giving up hope, something amazing happened that saved her life. I'm an American Indian. I was not raised in a Christian home. I wanted to do things my way, and I wanted to make my own decisions, right or wrong. I wanted to make them. At the age of 19, I got married. My husband spent many times in affairs and was an alcoholic. I did a lot of praying back then, but I didn't know who I was praying to. I knew there was something bigger than me. I considered myself spiritual. I spent a lot of time drinking and getting high. At age 21, I divorced this man. By age 24, I was pregnant and unmarried. I couldn't stop partying even when I was pregnant, and I miscarried twins at six months. At age 27, I was pregnant again and unmarried. Again, I was back to praying to something greater than me. I wanted a child, so I told God that if he let me have this child, I would stop getting high. At that time, I was smoking probably 20 joints a day. God took that desire away from me, and I carried my child to eight months. One night, I went out with a father to the bar, and I took one drink. The next day, I went into labor and delivered my son one month early. I thank God my child was fine. I felt I let God down though. I didn't keep my word. He kept his part. I didn't keep mine. I raised my son by myself. Being an American Indian, I began to seek out their religion and their beliefs. Since I was a teenager, I had something inside me that wanted to find out who I was. Why I'm here? And was this all there is to life? There was an emptiness I was trying to fill. I used drugs, alcohol, and sex to try to fill it. Eventually, I got heavily involved in powwows. I raised my son immersed in the culture and the spiritual beliefs of American Indians. But something was still missing. I was still looking for that love and acceptance of a family. I met a man from Cuba at a bar and we started dating. He loved kids, dogs, and me. So I thought, he was a gift from God, and I thought we should get married this time and try to do the right thing. By this time, I was 40 years old. My older sister had already become a Christian, as did my younger sister. They both married Christian men. They had children and carried on as a family, and I wanted that. I thought I could make things work out on my own. I felt like a family, but it didn't last long. So as time went on, the bad days started outnumbering the good. 
He would drink a fifth of Bacardi in an hour, and he would be drunk, out of his mind, but still functioning. I would spend the next two and a half years being tormented by him while he was blacked out. When he was sober, he would be kind. It was like living with a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and he was becoming more violent, even when he wasn't drinking. I was doing a lot of praying, just praying, God, Creator, I don't know who I'm supposed to be praying to. I was also fighting my own alcoholism and spousal abuse. I was fighting for my life. I used to be afraid of him, but eventually I started to copy his behavior. He would say mean and cruel things to me, so I would say things that were more painful back to him. I thought, what has happened to me? This isn't me. I used to be a nice person. I thought somebody was going to die, but I thought I would probably kill him in defense on one of the nights he blacked out and tormented me. I was always having these conversations with this God, this creator, asking him, there must be a reason why I'm here. I don't know what for, and I don't know why. On October 26 of 1999, my husband came home. I could see he'd been drinking. I said in my mind, I'm going to make this the worst night of his life, so he will never come home drunk again. So I spent the next two hours upsetting him. I wouldn't let him sleep. I was yelling at him. You make my life miserable. I'm going to make your life miserable. Then he walked into the kitchen and I was standing in the hallway yelling at him. Then he ran by me and poked me. I was still yelling at him. What are you poking me for? That's when I could see the knife in his hand and it was bloody. I immediately dropped to the floor. He jumped on top of me and stabbed me again in the stomach. I started screaming. Then he pinned me down and all I could move was my left hand. So as he came down, I grabbed the blade. Just as he was touching my chest, I was able to pull it off. I just started fighting with all I could to pull that knife out of his hand. So I said in my mind, God, he's much stronger than I am. If it's not this time, it will be the next. So I decided I will let him kill me. I let go of the blade, but as he raised it up, it was as if everything was in slow motion. Then I heard this gentle voice say, you will never have to deal with this again. I felt something lift off my shoulders while I lay there on the floor. The next thing I saw was my husband sitting eight to 10 feet away on the floor. He opened his hand and dropped the blade and said, oh my God, what have I done? Call the police. He went to jail and I went to the hospital. And for the first time, I had peace. I was calm. I know I was in God's hands. No matter what the outcome was, I knew his hand was on me. So after surgery, they woke me up. They repaired my thumb, stomach, and liver. And thank God there was nothing more serious. So when I got home, I told God, I'm done. I'd made a mess of my life. I'm not doing another thing. And if you want me to do something, you're going to have to tell me or I'm not moving. So he began to tell me. I heard his voice. I had no question whether it was God, and I was at peace. I began doing what he told me to do. I had to be responsible for my behavior. I had to tell the truth about what happened, and he told me to keep my eyes on Jesus and don't look back. That night I got stabbed. Nothing happened to me that night until I let go of that knife. I was struggling in all my strength, but I couldn't save my life. But the microsecond I let go and trusted God, he took over and stepped in. I didn't call on the creator that the Native American follows. I called on God, whose son is Jesus Christ, who sent his only son to die on the cross of our sins. He was raised from the dead, and he sits on the right hand of God. Who is alive? Jesus is alive. 
So my night with the king, I called on his name. God, the king of kings, and he heard me. He took this black sheep and made me white as snow. I was lost and now I'm found. Now how was the king able to change these things in my life? First thing, I surrendered. I let go and let God. Nothing happened until I let go. Second, not only did I hear God's voice, but I listened to what God was saying behind those words. I have worked with bosses who never let me talk. They can bark orders, but they don't let you talk. When they finally let you talk, it doesn't mean they're listening. But once they listen, it's communication. It's the same thing with God. We not only hear his voice, but we listen to it. We listen to what he's saying. Then thirdly, we obey what God is telling us and with a grateful heart. All these years later, God has held me close to him. And for that, I am forever grateful. Psalm 86, 9. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. When I first met Carol, I saw the most patient and caring person, and I would have never imagined she had such a rough past. As people look at Christians or the church from the outside, sometimes they can get the impression that we're all perfect little naive people uh, snug away in our church. However, if we move past the surface and look at our past, the BC years before Christ, they would tell a different story. Uh, I myself as a teen rebelled against my parents and Christian upbringing only to slide further and further into drugs, drinking, and crime. A serious drinking accident nearly cost me my life. From there I started seeking answers, praying, and reading the Bible, and I eventually found the truth. I will tell my full story in a later episode of the podcast. You're listening to the Think Twice TV podcast. Many of the stories you've heard today are available in video format at our website, www.thinktwicetv.com. Find original videos, true life stories, and content to help you grow your faith at thinktwicetv.com. Anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. It's time for the absolute basics of the Christian faith from seedbed.com. Answering those burning questions like who is God, what is salvation, and many more. So, let's take a bite. The Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith What is God like? One of the ways we know from Scripture that Jesus is the true God is that he's worshipped. After his resurrection, when Jesus meets the women at the tomb, the Bible says the women came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Jesus is worthy of worship because he's the true God, the second person of the Trinity, and God is perfect. Now, in order to understand perfection, we have a little bit of a problem. True perfection is hard to describe because we are not perfect. Imperfect people have a hard time knowing exactly what a perfect being would be like. Think about it a little bit like this. We can imagine the idea of a perfect circle. When we try and draw one, it's very hard. We mess up. Likewise, we can imagine the idea of a perfect God, even if we can't actually describe all the things this perfect God would be like. Fortunately, the Bible helps us out here by telling us some things about God's perfection. That God's perfection means that God is perfectly powerful, perfectly knowing, perfectly good. This means God can do anything, God knows everything, and God will always do what is right. For us, this is really good news because this means that we can fully trust God. He knows us completely and loves us perfectly. Nothing, except for us, can stop God from achieving the good plans he has for us. If God weren't perfect in this way, we might not be able to fully trust him. 
If God had all the power, but wasn't perfectly wise, he could be kind of destructive. If God was perfectly smart, but wasn't perfectly good, he might become kind of a villain. If God was perfectly good, but didn't have the power to save us, he would be sort of useless. Take this example. Imagine you have three superheroes, power person, genius guy, and moral man. Power person can do anything, but he's not very smart. So whenever he tries to help, he often does the wrong thing. Genius guy knows everything, but he isn't fully good. Sometimes he helps, but sometimes he uses his brilliance to his own selfish ends. Moral man knows exactly what the right thing to do is, and he desires to do it, but he isn't all powerful and all knowing. So even though he wants to help everybody, he can't, he's just a guy. If you got into trouble, which of these three would you call? It's hard to say, none of them might be any help. The good news is, though, that God is power person, genius guy, and moral man, all rolled into one. He has all the power, all the knowledge, and is perfectly good. So we can always trust him. The Absolute Basics of the Christian Faith from Seedbed.com It's time for a bottle of Bill's Wisdom, a short single-serving message of wisdom from our friend, Pastor Bill Leach. Larry Lawton, a philosopher of science, spent the last decade studying risk management. He writes of how we live in a society that is so fear-driven that we suffer from what he calls risk lock a condition which, like gridlock, leaves us unable to do anything or go anywhere. He summarizes literature on risk management in 19 principles, and the first principle is the simplest. He says, everything is risky. If you're looking for absolute safety, you chose the wrong species. You can stay home in bed, but that may make you one of the half million Americans who require emergency room treatment every year for injuries sustained from falling out of bed. You can cover your windows, but that may make you one out of the 10 people a year who accidentally hang themselves on the cords of their Venetian blinds. You can hide your money in a mattress. But that may make you one of tens of thousands of people who go to the emergency room every year from wounds caused by handling money. Everything from paper cuts to, if you're really wealthy, hernias picking up all that money. You know, if you step to the plate, you may strike out. You know, the greatest hitters in all the world fail two times out of every three. But if you don't step up to the plate, you'll never know the glory, the thrill of hitting a home run. There's danger in getting out of the boat. There's danger in hearing God speak and immediately obeying. Reminded of a great line in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe where the children meet the beaver and he's telling them about Aslan, the lion, and they say, is he safe? And the beaver says, safe? Oh, no but he's good. There's risk in obeying God, hearing his voice. 
But you know, there's greater risk in not listening to God and obeying. If we always opt for safety, security, and predictability, we will eventually die of boredom and stagnation. Let me repeat, everything is risky. This past week, I've been praying for you to hear God's voice and experience the the thrill of stepping out of your comfort zone in risky obedience. By reading this week, I came across this testimony of a pastor by the name of Jeffrey Cotter. He tells of an unforgettable plane ride when he took a risk. Returning from a job interview and dressed in blue jeans, he found himself sitting next to a pinstripe-wearing, attache-case-carrying, Wall Street Journal-reading businessman. Cotter's initial impulse was to avoid all conversation, especially about jobs. But when Mr. MBA greeted him, that option was lost. The man worked in what he called the figure salon business. He spoke of how he could change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. He talked of his excitement about the power and significance of what he did. Cotter was struck by the man's pride in his work and accomplishments. He wondered why Christians are not more like that. Why we are so often apologetic about our faith. He realized he had been in avoidance mode during the whole flight because of fear. Looking skeptically at Cotter's clothing, Mr. MBA asked about his line of work. I'll let Cotter tell it from here. He writes, the spirit began to brood over the face of the deep. Order and power emerged from chaos. A voice in a whisper reminded me, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's interesting that we have similar business interests, I said. You're in the body-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. He was hooked. But I knew he would never admit it. Pride is powerful. You know, I've heard of that, he replied hesitantly. But do you have an office here in the city? Oh, we have have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We, We have at least one office in every state in the Union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company he must have read about or heard about, perhaps in the Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, we've gone international. And management has a plan to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of this business era. I paused. Do you have that in your business? Well, no, not yet, he answered. But you mentioned management. How do they they make it work? It's a family concern. There's a father and and a son, and, and they run everything. Must take a lot of capital, he asked, skeptically. You mean money? I asked, yeah, I I suppose so. No one knows just how much it takes, but we never worry because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy, and and the money as well, it's just there. 
In fact, those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, he's into ranching, too, asked my captive friend. No, it's, it's just the saying we use to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back in his seat. What about you, he asked. The employees? There's something to see, I said. They have a, a spirit that pervades the organization so that we all find ourselves loving one another, too. I know this sounds a bit old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I have people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? I was almost shouting now. People were starting to shift noticeably in their seats. Not yet, he said. Quickly changing the strategy, he said, but, but do you have good benefits? They're substantial, I countered with a gleam. I have complete life insurance fire insurance, all the basics. You, know, you might not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now for my retirement. Do you have that in your business? <laughs> not yet, he answered wistfully. The light was dawning. You know, one thing bothers me. I've read the journals, and if your business is all that you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before now? That's a good question, I said. After all, we have a 2,000-year-old tradition. Want to sign up? Cotter said that we became more than casual strangers during those next five minutes. Imagine having God use you to speak to another person like that. Oh, I don't think you have to worry about having fancy words like indigenous <laughs> personality modification or theocratic principles or any of that nature. God just wants to use you and your story and your person and your personality. Imagine God using you. Hey, thanks for listening today. The next episode of the Think Twice TV podcast is entitled Right on Time, the God of Provision. I'll be sharing my own personal miracle story about how God provided a career job for me uh, in Dan's story, Future Revealed in Dreams. We'll also have Nate's story about his miracle child, an incredible story from a missionary in Africa swayed from suicide. Would you do us a big favor and share this podcast on your social media feed. All of our links are in the show notes. Thanks. This venture is sponsored by Media Messengers Evangelistic Association, revealing the love and power of God through media, www.mediamessengers.org. If you like the show, follow us on social media and please help us reach more people. All our social links are in the show notes. While all our stories are true, some of them have been read by voice actors. <laughs>